10 through your top five things to come from the series against Pakistan. I'll give you my top five. Number one for me, and it's not Dave Warner, surprisingly enough. Dave Warner's been the person that everyone's been talking about. It's it's not the end for Dave Warner, just the end of his test career, obviously. But the debates he has generated, almost unlike any other cricketer in history, his numbers say he's one of the greatest test batters of all time. But I tell you what, he's also arguably the most divisive that I can remember for a long time as well. But he's not the number one thing to come from the Test Series, even though it seemed to centre around Dave Warner. Would he get picked for the opening Test? Uh, The farewell tour that ended up uh, being the last thing that happened in this series. I think Pat Cummings. Uh, Pat Cummings is a star player, bowler, one of our greatest ever captains. He just keeps getting the job done, Pat Cummings. And I... My love for Pat Cummins has probably been the number one thing that has come from this series. It was there already, but it just keeps growing. I wouldn't mind knowing what Adam Collins' number one or two thing is to come from the series. He's been the voice of it with Gerard Whaley, and he's been good enough to join us. Welcome to you, Adam. Great to have you on. Great to be with you, Tuanya. I actually sat back at the SCG, weirdly enough. So it's a, it's a wet day here in Sydney, so lucky they, they didn't... Well, not they could have gone to day six in, in any case, but... Um, you know, that we got the test match in and there was no draw at Sydney as there has been quite a bit over the last few years. And we got the proper send-off for Warner and a fitting end to the series. But as you say, there, there, was, there was probably more to it than the 3-0 scoreline suggests. There's the Warner farewell lap. There's the, the performances of Pat Cummins who went on to become the player of the series. There was the consolidation of Mitchell Marsh who played a role across all three test matches with bat and ball. And then from Pakistan's perspective, Amir Jamal who has emerged from nowhere really. He was a depth bowler when he arrived here a month or so ago, but he's turned himself into a test cricketer straight away, and hopefully we'll see plenty more of him around the world as the years tick over, not just in short-form cricket, where he's played most of his cricket so far, but in, in the Red Bull stuff as well. So, obviously, Pat Cummins has been talked about quite a bit. There's been a few that haven't really warmed to him as quickly as, well, you probably have, but he's one of those guys that I've been watching for a while now to watch him evolve as a person, as a cricketer, as a captain, and he just keeps ticking every box. He, he's got some real lovability about him, I think, the way he goes about it, even though there were a few prepared to whack him for a couple of the things that he stood up for early. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, an interesting little period of time in his life and his leadership, wasn't it? Upon becoming captain, they, they flog England at home, but immediately after that, they decide to move on from Justin Langer. And at the same time as that, Pat was... Um, out uh, talking about a new foundation advancing the course of climate change mitigation, which angered a lot of people. The two things were conflated, um, that and, and Langer's uh, deposition, if you like, or the departure, rather, as coach. And uh, it did get a bit hairy for Pat, but as things can often, uh, as we often see in life, um, events overtake, don't they? And, and with Pat, that's exactly what's happened. The events of 2023, just dominating as captain with respect to what he achieved in the World Cup and in England, retaining the Ashes. And not, not every box was checked, but so many of them were under his leadership. And returning home in career-best form with the ball, uh, it has really just consolidated his own position, his own standing as, as a captain who can go on to be a great by the time he's finished. And Dave Warner, I've got, I've got a different sort of... Well, probably different to people... Most people look at Dave Warner because of my age, perhaps, maybe mm-hmm. because I'm over 50 and what I've seen of players for decades before him. Because I'm... I'm sort of outside the cricket broadcast bubble, where, where there is a, you do have a responsibility when you're broadcasting a test, I think, to look at the positive parts of it and broadcast positively when a great like Dave Warner is retiring. And, and mm-hmm. I do it when I'm commentating, and you have to do it. It's part of your responsibility, even though, you know, Jared Whateley's been critical of whether Dave should be in the team. 
I think Sandpaper Gate has kind of distorted the truth, and that is that people people think he's not liked because of Sandpaper Gate. I'm not sure that that's the full reality because he's fighting that other fight of this era of cricketer not necessarily being as popular full stop. And we all idolise the cricketers we idolised when we were kids. You know, if you were a kid and you grew up idolising mm. Warney or Alan Border or Ricky Ponty or Dennis Lee, you're never going to see anybody as probably the equal of those. But is that about to change? Do you think there's going to be a, a group of kids that are coming through now that I've idolised Dave Warner that will in 10 years' time raise his name when the greatest of the greats are raised? Because he deserves to have his name raised. And I presume that it will be raised when they get a bit older and they talk about their idols as kids? Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting question you raised there, Dwayne, about how he'll be seen in 10, 15 years' time. I think he deserves to be acknowledged as an innovator, first and foremost. Someone who struck at 70 in Test cricket as an opener, uh, there are not many people who've been able to achieve that, certainly not scoring the number of runs that Warner did, um, 26 Test tons. I know that there's a, a significant disparity between his home record and his away record, never made a century in India, never made a century in England. I, I understand all of that, but there wasn't room for a player like Warner doing what he does until he came around. He made room for himself, remembering that he made his debut as a, an international white ball player before he'd even played a first-class game. Then he was plucked after 11 games for New South Wales. He was popped straight to the test team. So they saw something there, especially Greg Chappell in that era when he was involved in selection and bringing through the next generation. Greg Chappell had a big hand with Stephen Smith and a big hand with David Warner, and look how it's paid off with the two of them. So um, I think that's... the, the Look, we saw it during the week, Saima Yub, the Pakistani opener, who was, he was effectively a white ball player. He's got some really impressive uh, red ball numbers in domestic cricket in Pakistan. But broadly speaking, a, a modern kind of player. I doubt there ever would have been room for someone like him unless David Warner blazed the trail. So he finishes with a test average almost identical to Alistair Cook. And that's in the same way funny, given the, the contrast in, in the way they played the game. They both go down as greats in their positions, respectively. But um, they did it in such contrasting ways at a similar kind of time in cricketing history. So I think it's proof that there is room for all sorts of different types of cricketers in the modern game. Whereas if you go back 20 or 30 years or even 10 or 15 years, there probably wouldn't have been room for someone like David Warner. All the external noise around Warner the person or Warner the indiscretions, uh, I think we've reached the point now where a lot of that is just vibes. If you, if you are disposed to liking someone like Warner, you probably don't mind all the other bits and pieces. If you're disposed to not liking someone like David Warner, well, you'll, you will have taken a set against him even before Sandpaper. Um, and I don't think he minds too much because his career has moved on from that. He served a very hefty suspension for what happened at Newlands in 2018. And that uh, punishment continues to this day, remembering he's still banned from captaining any Australian side. Mm. Not to say that it would happen now, but there was a window a couple of years ago when he might have become the one-day captain or the, or the T20 captain. Neither of those uh, scenarios played out because he wasn't allowed to become the captain again. So, uh, yeah, it's going to remain contested space. There are going to be very strong opinions in all different directions. And I suspect, Wayne, that'll only, uh, only continue to be the case when he moves into the commentary box because, as you know, as a broadcaster... Former players who are on broadcast tend to be paid to have pretty forthright opinions, and we know that Warner's got those. So once he moves upstairs into the com box for Foxtel next year, um, I suspect that it'll continue to be the case that those who like him really love him, and those who don't like him, well, um, they, they, they make their feelings known uh, fairly strongly as well. Well, let me extend that point then, because I think we always loved Ricky Ponting, but we seem to love him more now that he's such a spectacular commentator. Do you think yep. that might happen as well with Dave? I think that he will divide opinion the same way that his batting did 
at, at times mm. early on and, and the same way that his personality has. He, I think, look, it's difficult when you are working as close to the team as you are to um, capture all of the different perspectives. But, you know, I've been kind of on the road with this guy for the better part of a decade. So you, you get a better picture, I suppose, when you're with them all the time uh, on all the foreign tours they go on and around Australia. Um, but I think by now the Australian public know him well enough to have made their mind up on David Warner. And I genuinely don't think he minds. And by that I mean I think he realises that he's going to be divisive, that there's never going to be a consensus view on him the way there is around someone like Ricky Ponting. I doubt there are many people now who would be critical of Ponting's legacy as a player or a commentator. It's grown with time. Um, even though when he was finishing up as a player, it probably did divide opinion a little bit because he did tail off in the last few years and his captaincy success um, wasn't universal either. So um, whereas Ponting's reputation has grown over time, to use that comparison, I think with Warner, it'll continue to be uh, it'll continue to be emphasised on whichever side of the debate you fell in the first place. I don't know, you do have to go, but one last one, one of the other debates has been whether Test cricket's dying or not. I don't think it is a debate because I think, well, the numbers prove that it's not dying. It's box office when it's big nation v big nation and it's been rating its socks off both on SEN radio and TV, this Test series. It's box office when it's the big nations. Australia, you know, England, India, obviously... Um, so it's not dead, but it, it could end up that way if we have to have summers where we're kind of playing Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. We just want to share it around and, and stop the evolution process, which sees a number of countries love it and want to keep playing it. Some countries don't want to as much. How do we fix that then, Adam? Well, the first point to make is Australia don't play Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. They haven't played a test match against either nation at home for 20 years, which is a, which should Will we happened. be forced to? What, I, what I'm asking is if we're forced to because they want to rotate it, they want to share the wealth, that's, will that, we that's be forced to in works. future? That, yeah, that's just not how it works anymore. So the bilateral system that, that, that was in, in position before the World Test Championship's gone now. So it's not a case of like, we'll play you away if you come us at home. And it's, it's not negotiated in a bespoke way. It's within the organising structure of the World Test Championship. And Zimbabwe aren't in it. It's top nine nations. So three, four members. Zimbabwe, Afghanistan and Ireland sit outside of that structure. So Bangladesh will visit Australia in 2026, I think I'm right in saying, Dwayne, for two test matches that'll be played in the winter. Um, they'll be played in the August of 26, so they won't be part of the Australian summer. And the series that we've been conditioned to seeing Australia playing over the years will continue in the short term. Broader question, though, and it's a fair one, where does Test cricket sit right now in relation to domestic T20 franchise cricket? That is a very live question, and a lot has changed in the last 18 months. The proliferation of T20 domestic leagues, not only the fact that they exist, but that they're owned by, again, broadly the same people. The IPL own these competitions and these clubs around the world, which does change the, the market as we previously knew it. It was for so long and continues to be right now. You played for your country and you were given permission to play T20 domestic cricket. If that ever flips, and look, there are signs that it will, whereby a club or a franchise owns the player and they are occasionally released to international duty, that'll feel dystopian. But um, we've had Todd, Todd Greenberg from the Australian Cricketers Association on our broadcast for each of the Pakistan test matches. And his perspective on behalf of the players is that we're going to have to get used to some uncomfortable changes in world cricket because, unfortunately, from my perspective, that's the way the economics are moving. So, um, yeah, it's contested space again. What test cricket looks like in 10 years' time, what I'm certain of, it'll feel different to what it feels like at the moment. And that's largely due to the influence of uh, money from elsewhere and the ability for players to 
uh, make so much more money prioritising short-form domestic cricket as it relates to their um, to the to the money they can make when wearing the baggy green and, and other international caps playing test cricket. Are we are there people going to try and hold back the tide with the broom here with T20's growth? I don't think it's a case of holding the tie back with a broom necessarily. I just feel like administrators, the onus is on them. And look, we've heard from Mike there, the new chairman of Cricket Australia, and Nick Hockley, the chief executive of CA, relatively new in the job as well, talking about a redistribution model of finances this week, about trying to provide greater incentives for other nations outside of the big three, not just playing test cricket, but making it profitable in their countries. We go to New Zealand after this, Blaine, this two tests against the Windies, but then we go to New Zealand. They can't afford to play Australia in more than two test matches. How's that happened? They were the World Test Champions only three years ago, and Australia should be their marquee series. They, they seldom get a chance to play Australia over there in, in test cricket. The most recent tour was eight years ago, and yet it'll be two test matches, not three, because of the financial situation in New Zealand. How's it been able to drift to that extent? So, And it's not just them. It, it's the West Indies. It's South Africa. It's you know, Pakistan to an extent, Sri Lanka as well. A whole bunch of proud test-playing nations who are now finding it harder and harder to host test match cricket. And that's where I think the bigger nations have a responsibility to look out for those who aren't as financially independent. And that's going to be very complicated terrain. But if they don't take on this challenge now, it may well be there's only three or four uh, test nations playing serious test cricket in an organised structure in five or ten years' time. That, that's, not, um, that's not as unrealistic as it might feel at the moment. No, I feel that is a coming thing. Uh, Adam, great to have you. I really appreciate your time. I know you've got to go, but can't wait to talk soon. Thanks, Dwight. Have a good show. Adam Collins joining us, uh, one of the voices of SEN's Summer of Cricket, along with Jared Waitley and the team, and he'll be back for the test starting next week in Adelaide against the West Indies. Your thoughts on any of that? one 736 736 The open line will return to your calls. You can jump on now, get you on before the ad break if you'd like. One three hundred seven three six seven three six, or send through a text oh four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. Your new Temper Pro, Temper's most adaptive mattress ever is here. Temper T E M P U R mattresses like no other. As I mentioned, if you've got a thought on Dave Warner, um, I think Sandpapergate has distorted that a little bit. There are people that were divided on Dave Warner even before that, and the fight that he's fighting against. The other cricket eras that you grew up with, if you grew up idolising Warney or Ricky Ponting or Dennis Lilly or Alan Border for that matter, no one will ever measure up to them and the icons of the classic Australian eras past because you grew up idolising them. But are there kids now that are wanting to be Dave Warner, that idolise Dave Warner, that will start mentioning his name in seven or eight or nine years' time because that's what we tend to do. Uh, those who grew up idolising Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson and Rodney Marsh and Ian Chappell way back will probably still say that that era of cricket is the best. Maybe this era of cricket is the best. It's just that the kids don't ring up Talkback Radio right now to say it. 